we're going to be in Mark 12, again, following up from the message that I shared this past Sunday on um, <clears throat> staying on mission despite opposition. And today I want to talk about staying on mission despite the threat of intellectual ridicule. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that your, again, your word is living and active, that we can be confident in you because there's so much reason for us not to be confident in ourselves or in our own ideas. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you would give us strength to honor you, to be your church in this time. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So Sunday we talked about uh, staying on mission. It is just natural for uh, for vision to leak and mission to drift. But Jesus stayed on mission in his last in, in his entire life. But as we're walking through the last week of Jesus' life, uh, despite several reasons that could have taken him off mission, and one of the things that we saw in Mark chapter twelve is that he stayed on mission despite intellectual challenges. Verse 18 says, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and questioned him. Now the Sadducees were kind of the existentialists of Jesus' day. They were uh, the skeptics who did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe that uh, they, they believed, they claimed to believe the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, but they were kind of like the Epicureans, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. They didn't believe in a resurrection, and, and they kind of looked down their noses at people that believed in the supernatural. They saw themselves as kind of superior intellectually. So they bring to Jesus this hypothetical conundrum, verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no children, that man should take the wife and raise up his offspring for his brothers. This is called the lever of duty. The idea was uh, the, the three most vulnerable people in Old Testament times would have been foreigners, orphans, and widows. Widows would have no inheritance. There's just a whole bunch that would make them vulnerable. And so God made a way for somebody who would, was widowed in that culture to be cared for, to not just be abandoned and, and, um, and completely vulnerable. And that was the lever of duty where the, the next brother in line would be responsible to take her as a wife, to have a child with her, and then she would have the benefits of having children as a result of that. Well, in this scenario, they say this widow um, has a, uh, dies and her has no children. And so uh, they set up this scenario that they're just kind of, uh, you can almost hear them snickering in the back, in the background. Verse 20. So there were seven brothers. The first married the woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, uh, and none of the seven left offspring. Now, I don't know about you, but if I am in the line of those seven brothers, I think I start to get kind of suspicious. I start to wonder, maybe I need to check my 
my coffee before I drink it in the morning. Maybe it's been poisoned. Last of all, the woman died too. Verse 23. In the resurrection, O great teacher, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Now, this is one of the, those questions they think that they've, you know, they've probably talked about. They think nobody can answer. You know, kind of like the, oh, uh, you know, if, if God created the world, the atheist will ask, well, who created God? Now, it's a silly question, of course, because if God created the world, God by definition is God and is uncreated. But, but sometimes skeptics are like, oh, this is the question that will trump them and, and, and befuddle them. You know, how can there, God be three and one? I mean, the Bible doesn't use the word trinity in it, does it? Listen to Jesus' response. Verse 24. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scripture or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now that verse brings much comfort to people who don't want to be married in heaven. They like to hear, hey, you won't be married in heaven. Kind of like the woman who reported a missing husband to the police. She and her friend went to the police and reported, and, and they said, can you describe him? And she said, yes. He's six foot two, 195 pounds, dark eyes, thick, dark hair, six pack abs, and he's great with the children. Her friend says, Jane, what are you talking about? Your husband's not like that at all. He's five, five, portly, balding, and a workaholic. Jane says, yeah, but who wants that guy back? The Bible says that in heaven we will recognize people, um, and we want to spend eternity with someone you can, but you don't have to. There won't be marriage in heaven. Jesus says to the intellectuals, first, your assumption is wrong. In heaven, there's no marriage. Then he goes on and uses what they claim to be their understanding of the Bible against them. They claim to believe the first five books of the Old Testament. Verse 26, as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses? You know, the book that you claim to believe. In the passage about the burning bush, how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. You are badly mistaken. She says, you claim to believe the book of Exodus, but remember God saying to Moses that he is the God of Abraham. Abraham's been dead for generations, but God speaks of him as alive. See, I'm outside of time. Abraham still lives too, God says to Moses, in eternity. I am the God of Abraham. So you are misreading the Bible. You're wrong when you say there is no eternity. There is no resurrection of the dead. You're rejecting God's word and his power. Now, that's another mic drop moment, just kind of silencing the intellectuals. They're amazed by his teaching. It doesn't mean they're persuaded by it, but they're amazed because 
they can't respond to it. One of the challenges that Christians face today is from the so-called intellectual crowd, from academia. It's easy to lose your courage when people with uh, letters behind their names, people who've written or are acknowledged as being you know, intelligent, question your beliefs. It takes courage to stay on mission. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets up itself against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. People claim that they are smarter because, hey, they know the, they've been around the world more. They know more about other religions. They know more about philosophy. They know more about the world. Christianity is a battle for the mind. And the reality is the lost world lives in darkness, spiritually as well as intellectually. And the Bible says we have the mind of Christ. I'm going to talk about this more in my uh, upcoming um, devotionals with you. Jesus says of people who rejected him in Matthew 15, 14, leave them alone. They are blind guides. And when the blind leave the blind, they both fall into the pit. In other words, don't be intimidated by people who may be intellectually educated but are spiritually blinded. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Jesus said, yet wisdom is vindicated by her children. And the intellectuals of our day are proven by her children. Intellectuals, by definition, by the way, they live in the world of ideas removed from reality. Jesus in the Bible is not just teaching about ideas, but ultimate reality. And when Jesus says, obey me, he is saying, you are complying with reality. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the 19th century, there was no class more renowned, no nation more renowned for their intellectual class than that of Germany. But many have noted that the ovens of Auschwitz were first conceived behind the desks of intellectuals. Many would agree that, um, the, that the evils done by Marxism was begun by intellectuals who were removed from real people and real consequences. George Orwell himself said, some ideas are so stupid that only intellectuals can believe them. Malcolm Muggeridge described the intellectual class of his day as being educated beyond, educated into imbecility. Muggeridge was considered one of the leading um, journalists of Great Britain in the last um, generation. He grew up as a Marxist and as a, a Faustian, as a... Um, um, a, uh, um, um, uh, just a classic liberal and atheist. But he became a follower of Jesus Christ and he wrote this. So the final conclusion would certainly, would surely be that whereas other civilizations have been brought down by attacks of barbarians from without, Ours has the unique distinction of training its own destroyers at its own educational institutions. He wrote this, by the way, in the 1980s, in the early 1980s. He says, our 
our generation, our, our culture has the unique distinction of training its own destroyers at its own educational institutions and then providing them with the faculties, the facilities for propagating their destructive ideology far and wide, all at the public expense. Thus did Western man decide to abolish himself. The world has never had a greater accumulation of knowledge than we enjoy today. And what is the fruit? Jesus says, wisdom is vindicated by her children. What is the children of modern intellectualism without God? Think about it. Modern intellectuals would tell us that God doesn't exist, that the Bible shouldn't be believed, that there's no ultimate purpose in life, there's no ultimate right or wrong. It's telling us now that we should judge people by the color of their skin. The way that we should judge is based on the color of people's skin. That the taking of human life in the womb is an entitlement. That our identity is not in how God sees us, but it's in our behavior and in our performance and in our emotions. The biblical morality is not loving, but unloving. And that 4,000-year-old decadence is progressive morality and love. Jesus says, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Wisdom is proven by the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, order, not chaos, gentleness, Wise thinking begins with new hearts and produces the fruit of the Spirit. If we're living to impress people who have educated themselves into imbecility, if we get um, intimidated by an intellectual class, whether they be in academia or in the modern media, then it will erode our wisdom as well as our courage. So 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. If you are young to Christianity, remember that good old story of Karl Barth. Karl Barth was considered one of the leading theologians of the early 20th century and he made a tour of the United States. By the way, he was German and vehemently opposed to Nazi Germany. He saw its evil and dared speak against it, even though it meant being an outcast of popular Germany of that time. But he was taking a tour of uh, schools in the United States, and somebody asked him, Dr. Bart, what is the greatest truth you've ever pondered. Here's a man considered one of the leading theologians of his day. So the greatest truth I've ever discovered is this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a perfect response, not only because it's wise and true, but because that's a song, those are the words of a song that we teach our children when they are young. 
probably the first song I ever learned was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. See, the greatest truths of God can be understood by the youngest child. And yet, ask the PhD who's walked with God all of his or her life, what is the greatest truth that you know today? What is the greatest truth that you will take into eternity? It is that very same truth, very practical truth. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. See, accepting that takes humility. Uh, intellectuals have a hard time with that because you don't have to have PhD level understanding to accept it. But the Bible says the common people heard Jesus gladly. Listen, the answer to the world's problems, to the problems of war and suicide and anger and chaos and lawlessness are not to be found my friends in the halls of academia or Congress or the press rooms that set itself up against the authority of God, but in the word of God. So be courageous in Christ. Study the Bible every night, day. No scripture. Hide it in your heart moment by moment and then take captive every thought. Make it obedient to Christ. And not only will you be wise, but you will have courage to stay on mission. Heavenly Father, help us to be of sound mind and strong will to stay on your mission in a world that desperately needs Jesus. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. And the next couple of sessions, I'm going to be talking about truth as well. Um, I hope you're doing well with your fasting. I hope you're uh, finding opportunities to share Christ and uh, invite people to worship you, with you on uh, this Easter and see what God does through you. See you soon.